It's good to be back up again. Thank you, uh, pastors, for allowing me the opportunity to come here and preach again. We'll be looking at the book of John, chapter 2, as Ben read. But by way of introduction, I know it's been quite a while since we've been in the book. So let me reorient you guys through what we've gone through thus far. And as I've been reading the book over and over again, I wish I had a do-over for chapter one. <laughs> I have it down to three different R's, uh, three points. Revelation, rejection, and reception in uh, John chapter one, verses one through 18. And you see this pattern all throughout, at least the first half of the book of John, of Jesus revealing himself, and then we observing his glory, and there are two different options that the people have. They either reject him, or they accept him, they receive him. Let me show you in the text. Revelation. We see this in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later on it says, in him was life, and that life was the light of man. That light shines in the darkness. We also see this movement of rejection in verse 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. We also see in point number 3, in 12, verse 12 it says, But to all who did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So the three movements, first you see revelation, secondly, either rejection or reception. We're going to be confronted by the word this morning. We're going to be confronted by the glory of Christ through his word and through the spirit. And I ask you the same question. When we observe the glory of Christ this morning in this text, will you receive him? Or will you be like the Pharisees who rejected him? Now, as you can see, the sermon's going to be a little different than, than usual. I don't have a PowerPoint. Uh, your PowerPoint is going to be this right here. So <laughs> just follow along in the text. I broke the sermon down into two different halves. The first half is I'm just going to read the story and just explain it to you. And then the second half, that's what will go into the reflection part of it. I love the book of John, and um, the way it's written is very meditative and very reflective. And so I want to do that with us this morning is read through the story and then make some reflective observations. So let us turn to John chapter 2, verse 1. As you turn there, I want you to imagine um, I was walking down. Um, there, there's a really awesome path. Uh, going down here, down to a lake, and it's, it's really beautiful. And I got to run into a number of different people, but my mind started running, and I was thinking to myself, man, what if, what if I were to come into conversation with one of these people? How would I introduce Christ to them? We see that John introduces Christ here in this passage. I was thinking to myself, what would be the first thing that I would mention about Christ or what would be the first sign or miracle that I would um, introduce Jesus with? I think I would point to different things like the transfiguration, where Jesus' face, face shone like the sun. And 
there was the heavens open and there was a voice crying out from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Or perhaps you would go to another passage like the passage of his cousin Lazarus who dies. Jesus doesn't come right away. But when he does, he says, Lazarus, come forth. And everyone sees that this person who was once dead has come to life. Those are two powerful accounts. However, this is not the way that John introduces Jesus in his book. He doesn't choose some of the more, as we would think, the more impressive or the more supernatural events. Rather, he chooses something a little more earthly. He chooses something a little more human. And the word was made flesh. And he dwelt among us. John 2, verse 1, it says, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And you'll notice in here, mother's not named here. So Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. This is Jesus we're talking about. As we're reading in the Apostles' Creed, this is the Lord Almighty. This is the maker of heaven and earth. You might think that he might have more important things to do than be at a party. However, this was the way of Christ. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came not to be the head of the party. But as we see in this text, it's almost like he came incognito. As, as we enter this story, it is almost as Christ is not the centerpiece of the story. He attends this wedding. And just like you and I, he has earthly relationships. He has family. He has childhood friends. And just like us, he was able to enjoy these fun times with his family. We could stop to meditate on this social, relational God of ours. Jesus was more than happy to go to a most ordinary human event. Jesus came not to be the center of attention, but to give honor to the bride and to the groom, along with his friends, his mother, and his family and disciples. We see in verse 3, the problem unfolds. In the Bible, wine is a drink of celebration. Every time that you see celebration, you see this, this liquid that people use to, to celebrate. It's liquid celebration. Everyone knew that in this time. But there is a problem here. Verse 3 says, the wine ran out. 
I was thinking about different tra tragedies of what could happen in a wedding, and there were two things in Rachel and, and our, our, my wedding that took place. So um, when we were in our getaway car, and as we were getting away, it broke down. <laughs> and then so we were on the side of the road, and we were trying to wave at people, and they were like, oh, how nice, they're waving at us. So like three or four cars like were just like driving past us thinking that we're just nice waving at them, where actually we were, <laughs> we were asking for help. Um, after our honeymoon, we came back. Um, our photographer gave us all the different uh, photos that she had, and she's like, oh, by the way, um, I lost all the files with all your family and friends that we took pictures of. Like, the, looking back at, at those things, like, th those are pretty crazy events, but they're not tragic. Rachel and I are, are still okay. They weren't a catastrophe. I think of a friend who who was a part of a uh, catering business, and at the venue that he was, he was a truck driver, and he had all the food in the car, and he was, it, was, it was at a golf course, and he was going down the road, and he hit a bump, and it startled him, and he, he, uh, he turned fast. And then everything in that, in that car just, like, flipped over. So all the food for that venue was ruined, can you imagine the type of Yelp ratings that you would get um, if you were the company that, that did that? Well, I want you to ima imagine with me this wedding. You see, in this wedding, it wasn't just a one-day event. It was a full seven days. It was a weekly celebration. And the bride and groom would spend up to a year or maybe even more planning this event every single aspect of it, the guests that would come, the food and the wine that they would provide. But the wine ran out. This would have been a nightmare. You see, in the first century, running out of wine was a, a catastrophe because the groom would have been held responsible of the managing of this whole event. This would have been an embarrassment. In a shame culture, this would have been a shame. Could you imagine the type of Yelp review, reviews this, this groom would have had? Oh, weren't you the person who were, was supposed to provide for that wedding and you miscalculated or you you had some mishaps. Like this, this type of event affected not only that day, not only that week, it affected the rest of their lives. It would be like a scarlet letter or a stigma on them. It would be really hard for people after something like this to want to do business with that type of family. As we come to the middle of verse 3, we see that Mary and Jesus have this conversation about this upcoming catastrophe. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was working in the background. The text doesn't tell us why, but maybe she was related or somehow in close connection with the people of, of that wedding. And she noticed that the wine was running out. It says in the middle of verse 3, Jesus' uh, mother told him, 
they don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. (laughs) All right, guys. (laughs) When your wife or your mother asks you to do something, (laughs) please don't say, what does this have to do with me? (laughs) Um, To our modern ears, what Jesus is saying seems cold. It seems very distant. Yet this idiom you see, is, is used in many other parts of Scripture. It is literally in Greek, what to you to me? And so that, that, makes, that is unintelligible to us. I think what Jesus is trying to say is, we don't, what, what does this involve me? Or how does this involve us? Or I personally think, as, as Jesus is hearing this, he's telling Mary, what does this embarrassment have to do with us? What does this shame, what, why should we have to be involved with this shame? And then you have the way Jesus addresses her, woman. <laughs> now, husbands, do not say that to your wives. Do not call them woman. Um, in the Bible, this was a greeting. It was a very polite greeting. It's almost like today we would use the word ma'am. Um, but just to be honest with the text, those who would be reading this, although it was very polite, it was still kind of weird that Jesus would call his mom ma'am or, or woman at this point. They would see a, 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 a little bit of a distancing. I looked at the commentaries to see what they had to say about that because I thought that was a little weird. I love how one commentator put it. And I paraphrase, Jesus is embarking on his new ministry. From then on, from his baptism, he recognizes his earthly ministry. He would no longer identify as the son of Mary, but as the son of God and savior of the world. Where once Mary nursed Jesus and taught his little feet how to walk. From now on, he would no longer see submit to his earthly mother but put his submission toward his heavenly father and the mission that he has called him to where once mary was once mama and 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 mommy now she is to be viewed differently she must now see jesus as everyone else must see him as Lord and Savior. This is not callousness on Jesus' part. It is actually uh, a way of Christ loving his mother. And, it's, and in this, Jesus is assuming his now new relationship with his heavenly father. We see that in the next passage where, he's, where he talks about the house of his heavenly father. Now Mary must take on the role, just like everyone else, no longer seeing Jesus as his earthly son, but as the son of God and the savior of the world. Mary recognizes this and now directs the servant's attention to whom 
it should be brought to. So she takes the eyes of the servants off of her, who is helping in the wedding, and says in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. As we come to uh, 6 through 8, we see that Jesus instructs the servant in a quite a peculiar way. It says, Now six stone water jars have been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 to 30 gallons. And as if we were doing a Bible study in this passage, we would realize that every part of Scripture has, every detail matters. I don't think it's a matter that we should just brush off that Jesus uses these six stone water jars that are used for Jewish purification. Commentators have speculated what that, that, what that may mean, but all I want to draw from that at this time is that they could have used the wine jars. <laughs> the wine jars were running out. Jesus could have refilled those. Why did he have to use the ceremonial pots? Um, some of the commentators have, have even pointed out that the fact that these ceremonial cleaning jars were in the wedding was kind of weird as well. You didn't see these kind of pots at weddings. Perhaps the family was religious and they, they cared about um, the, this purification blessing or uh, this, this purification. Um, the text doesn't say, so we could, we could just speculate, but... What, what we do see is they planned on having these purification pots, but the groom didn't plan enough for how much wine he would need for the wedding. Regardless of why the jars are there, it is an interesting detail. Verse 7, Jesus says, Fill the water pots, or fill, fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. As we come to verses 9 through 11, we see the response of the head waiter. Can you imagine being one of these wedding servants, hearing all these different things that Jesus is telling them to do? Take these six water pots and go, go to the well, fill them up to the brim, and then bring them back. And then after you bring them up, serve this to the head waiter. Verse, verses uh, 9, it says, When the head waiter tasted the water, after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, Everyone sets the fine or in the Greek, the good wine first. And then after, people are, are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine or the good wine until now. From these two verses, I want to make two or three different observations. Number one, the miracle that Jesus performs here is in secret. The head waiter tastes this, this fine liquid, and he, he feels like he needs to praise someone 
So who does he praise? He praises the groom of sending out the best wine that he had that whole week at that very moment. Another observation that we can make is that the bride and groom did follow custom. (laughs) They did send out what they thought was the good stuff first, but it ran out. You see, Jesus provided the good stuff. And the head waiter was was basically saying, why were you holding out on us? Why did you save the best for last? Observation number three. The head waiter's comments toward the groom and the praise that is given toward the groom is not actually for, for the groom. As we read this, we realize that it is for a different bridegroom. It is these praise comments are directed toward Jesus, and he doesn't even know it. Verse 11, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. As I said, um, I wanted to walk us through the story. And here I just want to give you three points of reflective application of how Jesus reflected his glory, shown his glory, manifested his glory through the water turned into wine. Number one, he reveals his glory by connecting this wedding to the creation account. Number two, he reveals his glory through the miracle itself. And lastly, he reveals his glory through the overabundant provision of blessing. Let's walk through those one by one. Number one, he reveals his glory by connecting this miracle to the wedding, or uh, this miracle at the wedding to the creation account. I wouldn't naturally make these these, uh, type of uh, comments or make these hermeneutical um, statements, but I feel comfortable saying it because of um, the different things that I've read and the different things that I've been seeing in the text. For instance, you see this Uh, this parallel between Genesis 1 and John 1. In the beginning, God. And then in John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. And then as I was reading others who have gone to to this uh, text, they point out that it starts saying, on day one, this happens. And on day two, this happens. And day three... On the third day, as we see in this text in, in uh, verse 1, I think that the author is making a connection here. What does Jesus, or what, what does God create on the third day in the creation account? He creates the land and all its produce, the vegetables, and the fruit. 
He made every tree and plant to bear fruit. What does Jesus create in this wedding? He creates the, the, the fruit or the liquid from that fruit vine. <laughs> I believe that this text, that what John is trying to do is he wants us to see this parallel between God who is the creator God and what Jesus is trying to do in bringing in this new creation with new creation blessings. Number two, he reveals his glory through the miracle itself. He reveals his glory through the miracle itself. I was trying to think about scientifically, like how in the world would you, would you describe this? And um, there, there was one uh, person who took a stab of it, at it, um, and he says this. At first thought, this task of changing the water into wine appears like it's a parlor trick, uh, a sleight of hand, a diverting of the audience's attention in order to change the substance of the liquid. However, Jesus really did change the water into wine, thus revealing his glory. At a molecular level, the water, basic, basically hydrogen and oxygen, was changed into wine that contains sugars, yeast, and water, which contain the carbon and nitrogen along with oxygen and hydrogen. Thus, by changing water into wine, Jesus demonstrated his authority over even the atomic structure of atoms by commanding oxygen and hydrogen atoms to disassemble and reform into other atoms of different configurations. Now, let me give you a sim simplified version of this, of, uh, this commentator that I read. Um, basically, Jesus would have had to had an atomic amount of energy to separate the molecules and it, not only to do what an atomic bomb does by separating it, but in, an inverted atomic bomb to bring it back together to be uh, a different substance. Not to mention that the water that was changed demonstrated Christ's power over time and space. Wine requires a long process. The growth of the plant, the maturation of the grape, the harvesting of the grape, the treading of the grapes into juice, the aging that it required to have that type of fermentation. Great wine takes a long time to ferment. Jesus bypasses all of this and makes wine in an instant. This is an act of God. We see that Christ reveals himself through connecting this passage to the creation account, and secondly, through the actual miracle. And thirdly, we see that Christ reveals his glory through his overabundant provision. Why does Jesus use the ceremonial pots versus using the actual wine jars that, that they had? The text says that it held up to 20 to 30 gallons. 
So it would have held up to 180 gallons of wine. If you were to put that in our modern terms and measurements, that would be 1,000 bottles of wine. Now, what are you going to do with 1,000 bottles of wine in one week? You see, Christ and the blessing that he would give was too big and too huge for those small wine jars. He had to use the ceremonial wine pots, 180 gallons, 1,000 bottles of wine. And here we see this liquid blessing, this celebration, liquid, passed out, and everyone is overjoyed. Here we see Jesus in, as the new covenant blesser blessing the people in this party. I want to ask the question, what would have happened if Jesus talking to Mary and Jesus said, what does this have to do with me? What does this, this shame or what does this incident have to do with us? You see, Jesus didn't have to intervene. He didn't have to intervene in their shame. You know, to be honest, I feel shame almost on a weekly basis. I look at the sins that I commit. I look at what I feel as being incompetent or as a failure, or I look at my brokenness, and I think to myself, shame. Have you ever felt that way? Either as you look at your sinfulness or you look at your incompetence or you look at your failings all throughout the week and you think, shame. Well, Jesus wants to identify with that shame. He wants you to go to him. In the same way that Mary was able to point out that shameful issue, we must Go to Christ with our shames. And he will not say to us, what, what do I have to do with that? As you give it to him, the very thing that would cause shame is the very thing that God wants to show his overpowering blessing. As you lay out that shame to him, he pours out blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Brothers and sisters, do not wear the clothes of shame. In Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11, you don't have time to go there, but it talks about a king who would come he would have the scepter, and he would be sitting on a throne. And it has an interesting comment about wine. It says that it would have so much wine that he would dip his robes in it. You see, Christ comes with overabundant blessings 
new covenant blessings that he does his laundry in it. He washes his clothes in wine. Brothers and sisters, don't wear the robes of shame this morning. Put on the wine-washed robes of Jesus Christ. Remember his exuberant amount of blessing as we come to the table. Let's pray. Father, sanctify us by your word. Your word is truth. Thank you for the overabundant, exuberant blessings that come through you. Spirit, speak to our hearts a better sermon. Speak to us as we sing these songs, as we reflect at the table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.